All right. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right. So last week we looked at who God is and where Jesus came from. And if you missed it, please go back at some point and listen to that message again as it lays the foundation of everything that I'm trying to build on in this next this series. But in summary, what we talked about was that Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit, the Trinity, they exist in perfect love and in perfect fellowship before the creation of time. And they did not create humanity to, because they needed anything from us or, or demanding our worship of some kind, but as an overflow of their love so that they can be with us, so that God can share his life with us that he could share his incredible life and love and joy and delight and that fellowship that we get to enter into. That's what, that's what last week was about. And that now we can live in love more like him as a result. And so today, I want to talk about, as we're in the series called, Who is this man called Jesus? I want to talk about Jesus becoming human. And, and specifically, there's just two things we're going to talk about today in regard to that. First, that Jesus became truly human in every single way right? Completely human, completely human being. And that second, because of his humanity, because of him coming to earth, God becoming man while still remaining God, we can truly get to know God and what he is like and relate to him today. So that's where we're going today. And then next week, we're going to look at how this fully God, fully human Jesus, then how he does everything that he does, completely dependent upon the Father, and how everything he does is empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. So, today, Jesus is fully human. And, and when we see images of Jesus, especially around Christmas time, they often give us a pretty twisted understanding of Jesus' humanity. Right? So if you look at pictures of Jesus' birth, like the ones above, there's always a common denominator, it seems. And if you look at them, it seems that Jesus was born radioactive, right? <laughs> like the light from the room always emanates from Jesus, or he's got a halo that's on fire or something, right? That, that we have this set that, and so that may just seem simple, but in reality, that's the heresy we were talking about last week at the Council of Nicene. The idea that Jesus is God, but actually not fully human. We have these concepts that he wasn't actually fully a human being. And it even comes in some of our songs. If you think about like one of my favorite uh, Christmas songs that we sing at Christmas, Away in a Manger. It says, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, the next line, no crying he makes. Wait a second. Do, do they understand anything about babies? Right? If a baby's not crying, it means there's a problem with the baby, right? The babies cry. The only reason they say that is there's this twisted understanding that we can somehow get back to believing that Jesus wasn't actually fully human. And that's what the whole Council of Nicene was about that we talked about last week. You know, my kids, they, they watched this movie once I saw with them called Boss Baby. It's this cheesy movie, right? But it's about this little baby that can walk and talk and is smarter than most of the adults around him and, and, and coming up with all these plans. I mean, is that what Jesus was like? Was he just this little baby stuck in a human body, but was actually all of God and all the wisdom and all that stuff, and he was just contained, and he just had to grow big enough to finally express those things? Absolutely not, is what Scripture tells us. Baby Jesus did not have superhuman abilities. 
He did not come out of the womb able to wipe his own bum. He didn't, he didn't have like perfume smelling vomit that he vomited onto his parents. It wasn't like a wonderful experience for them. He didn't sleep peacefully through every single night. In fact, he regularly kept them awake, exhausted late into the morning and into the day. And as he grew, he wasn't always the best at most of the stuff he did. He wasn't the fastest kid at school. He likely wasn't the best at all the subjects that he studied. He often made many mistakes. And when he went fishing, because he lived on the lake, he often came home without any fish. Right? And here's the crazy thing. And this isn't heresy, so stick with me. Here's the crazy thing. Do you recognize there was a period in his life where Jesus didn't even know that he was the Son of God? How can I say that? Because a two-year-old cannot understand the concept of divinity. Just try and ask a two-year-old what that means, right? It's not possible. Neither can a three-year-old. We don't know at what point in his life that he had developed to the point where he understood that. We know definitely by the time he was at the temple when he was 12 that he had some understanding. But Jesus had to learn who he was. Luke tells us in chapter 2, verse 52, he says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and in favor with men. That means that Jesus had to learn. He he didn't know all things to start with. He had to grow to even know who his father God was. And and how do I know all this? Because some of these things say, well, that's not stated directly in, in scripture. Because Jesus is fully human. He came fully human. He fully entered into humanity, maintaining his divinity. But for his time on earth, he chose to limit himself to the full human experience. Last week, when we talked about the Trinity, uh, I wanted to lay that foundation. And today I want to do something similar. I want to lay a foundation of the humanity of Christ. And I don't want to make any assumptions. I know Steve's talked about this stuff over the years, but I don't want to make any assumptions of what we know. I just want to to start and lay this foundation. So to start with, let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, Please have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is Paul speaking to the church. He says, Six, "Though though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. Seven, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here Paul tells us that Jesus is God, and in all, and all his glory, but he came to earth. And in verse 7, it says that he emptied himself. The, the NIV translates that saying, he made himself nothing. So, so how did he empty himself? Well, it says it in the next verse there. He took the form of a servant. In, instead of the king of glory in heaven, he came to earth as a slave. And he was born just like humans, just as a baby. God could have had him come fully formed like Adam, as a fully formed adult. But he had him come as an infant, the same as other humans. Still fully God and fully divine, but completely human. And the Bible shares a lot about his his humanity. And the Gospels tell us that despite, or or pretty much other than just an incredible aptitude or an ease of understanding the scriptures that he demonstrated when he was 12, when he goes to the temple, there's really no one that was close to him that saw anything strange about Jesus in his entire life growing up. There was nothing special about him. Not even his own family thought he was unique or special. It's incredible. 
And so towards the beginning of his ministry, when Jesus was starting to gather in crowds and people were starting to believe he was the Messiah as he started sharing, Mark tells us this in chapter 3 of Mark. In verse 20, he says, Then Jesus went home, and the crowds gathered again, so that they could not even eat, because the crowds keep hearing of all he's doing. And 21, And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him and grab him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. This is his family. His own family calling him crazy, trying to protect him from himself. And he didn't even respond. So a few verses later, his mother and his brothers, they they, they try again to bring him inside to protect him. So in, in verse 31, he says this. He says, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him. They couldn't even reach him because of the crowds. And they called him. And the crowd that was gathering around Jesus said, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Even those close to Jesus thought he was crazy and were concerned for his health. They, they, they didn't know that, that, they didn't believe anything that he was saying. His entire life, nothing that they had seen evidence in the first 30 years of his life gave them any reason to believe he was anything other than just a regular carpenter from Nazareth. His own brothers and his own family. I mean, you can fool some other people, but your own brothers? A couple chapters later, Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And then this happens in Mark chapter 6. It says, He went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they all took offense at him. You see, Jesus didn't come from a big city like Seattle or even smaller like Mill Creek. He came from Nazareth. Scholars and archaeologists say that at the time there would have been about 100 to 150 people living in Nazareth at that time. That means everyone knew Jesus. Everyone. They would have known him. They watched him grow up. They would have bought a lot of their products from his dad's shop. His dad would have come and fixed different things. And when his father died, Jesus would be the carpenter that they would have been turning to regularly. They knew Jesus. They watched him from infancy grow up. They saw him learn to walk. They saw him learn to talk. And now when they see Jesus gathering crowds, talking about being the anointed one, what do they think? Do they say, oh, definitely. No, they say he's crazy. And they take offense because they, who does this guy think he is? That guy, the carpenter's son, that that kid that that we used to whisper about because the only reason he was special was actually not for a good reason. It's because the whispering was that everyone used to wonder who's his real father. What really happened between Mary? Because Joseph isn't it. So the only reason he was known as special was just because he was the illegitimate child in the town. They didn't believe him. In fact, in the Gospel of John, we see in chapter 7, verse 5, John says that not even his brothers believed in him. His own family didn't believe that he was the Messiah because nothing that Jesus did ever gave him that impression. Jesus determined before coming that he would live the entire human experience in every single way. That there was nothing about his childhood that would stare out, that would stand out. There was no halo. There was no healing of birds. There was no angelic singing voices following him around. There wasn't a prophetic gifting that he could just know everyone's name everywhere he went. The author of Hebrews states it very clearly. He says in chapter 2, verse 14, 
Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Or the next verse in 17, he says, For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every single way. That means that Jesus got tired, he got angry, he got lonely, he got sick, he was tempted to lust, and his fart smelled too, right? He was fully human in every single way. The author of Hebrews says again in chapter 4, in verse 14, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus was fully human, just as we are. He can identify with us in every single way. He was tempted just like we are. He struggled with every struggle we face, with uncertainty and anger and fear and loneliness. He felt isolation. He understood the insecurity of, of all that gripped him as a result of the plan that God had for him. He knew grief and pain beyond anything any of us shall ever experience. And this is why statements he makes are so powerful, because he understands. So like in Matthew chapter 11, when he says this in verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me, Jesus says. If he was superhuman, there's nothing to learn. Learn from me, he says, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls in me. Watch how I follow God, he says. He knows our burdens and our pains. You know, there are a couple experiences in my life that just brought this home for me about the humanity of Jesus, how he truly entered into humanity. Both of them related to becoming a father. So when JJ was first born, I'll never forget the first time I held him in the hospital. But it was a unique experience for me because at the time I was a pretty unhealthy person. I've alluded to it before, but I was about just starting my journey towards emotional health. Prior to that, I was a really broken person emotionally. And I was just starting my journey in counseling and I'd not yet had kind of a major breakthrough that happened kind of in a second year where the Lord dealt with terrible stuff from my past of abuse as a child, and not from my parents, but abuse from my mom sitting right here. Abuse as a child, amazing woman, right? Um, that happened as a child. And, uh, and, and it, I got this, went on an incredible healthy path. But prior to that, I was emotionally constipated, right? I was like a robot. I could just turn on and off my emotions like a light switch. And Sarah and I were genuinely worried about how I would become as a father because I didn't like kids. I didn't like babies and didn't want to be around them. And so up to that time, I had two health or two places I viewed emotions being okay. When I'm preaching about God, because I was a Bible teacher, I could, be, I could cry at the drop of a hat when preaching and teaching and praying. Or the other one was I'd have a really unhealthy emotional obsession with the Seahawks. And I could scream at the TV and yell and jump up and down and be elated. And then I'd be depressed for weeks when they lost or when they threw that interception to Malcolm Butler in the end zone. Months of depression afterwards, right? Like I could be so over the top emotionally with that during that time. But I was actually had this amazing revelation. I think it was just last week. I was sitting with Esther and, and Phil Wagner. And all of a sudden it came to me as we were talking about this. And I realized an amazing thing happened when I started going through counseling, getting healthy, is my un amazingly unhealthy obsession with the Seahawks all of a sudden began to fade. Almost like there was a connection between my emotional brokenness and my obsession with a meaningless football game. Uh, now, that's, that was just me. I'm not saying anything about anything about else here. No one else would ever struggle with such things, I'm sure, right? That was just me. But Back to JJ. So I'm holding JJ at his birth. And I'll never forget it. As I hold him, and Sarah's looking at me, and all of a sudden tears start streaming down my face the first time I held him. This baby, so precious, so weak. I mean, he can't even lift his own head. I mean, I was scared to hold him. I'm just like, ah. 
And I remember looking over at Sarah, and she's got tears streaming down her face. And I know in her heart she's thinking, oh, he's connecting with his son. It's so beautiful. What she didn't understand is because of my brokenness. No, that wasn't it. What I was doing is I was reciting Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, which said, the one we just read, that said that Jesus became fully human, that he laid his life down for us, and he became nothing for our sake. And as I looked at JJ, I was seeing Jesus, and I was just saying, oh, my goodness, God, you came like this. You were this vulnerable, this dependent upon human parents. You you came fully human in every single way. I I just couldn't believe that God was that precious, that vulnerable in the way that he chose to come so he could identify with us. And then there was another instance that really brought it home for me. And and this, I'm not going to say which child it was because I don't want to embarrass them at some future point. But one of my kids, they, they were a couple weeks old and I was changing their diaper on the kitchen table. And as I took their diaper off, I went back, and they were naked. I, I went back to, to grab their diaper and walked away. They were in a changing pad. Don't worry, they were safe. I'm not a horrible father. And, uh, and Sarah said, I need to say that to not make him think I'm a terrible father. But I, I might undermine that in just a second here. Um, and so I went to get the diaper, and I came back to put the correct diaper on him. And as I did, I saw the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. And I just have to share this, you see. Because as I came back, JJ, he was peeing, right? Which isn't that big of a deal. But he was peeing in a perfect arc that was going up and landing directly on his tongue, right? And, 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 and it's not just that he was doing that. That wasn't the funny part. If it was just that, I would have stopped it. But he was loving it. It was the best day of his life. He was laying there going, ha, ah. Like, I have, I'd never seen him so happy. He was giggling. He was happy as can be. And it was living his best life as this texture was on his mouth. And I literally fell on the ground laughing. I couldn't contain myself. I'm just on the ground cracking up. Sarah hears me in the kitchen. She walks out. She's, what's going on? I'm like, Jesus, peeing in his mouth. I was supposed to say which kid. Whoops. Anyways, um, cut that. And, and so... I said, he's peeing his mouth. And Sarah said, what? She looks at him and she's like, you idiot, what are you doing? She grabs the diaper, slams it on top of them, and then pursues to say wonderful things about my fathering abilities. And, and as I'm laying on the ground, just cracking up, I can't even get up. I'm just gasping for breath. Like, that's the funniest thing I've ever seen. He loves it so much. I'm like, don't stop. Don't make him stop. He loves it. He loves it. He's having a blast. All right, so all that happens. And the next day, I go to have a quiet time with the Lord. And, and no joke, I come before the Lord. And at that time, I'd been spending a lot of time meditating on the incarnation. I'm sitting there talking with Jesus about the, and meditating on his humanity. And I asked Jesus, no joke, I said, Jesus, did you ever pee in your own mouth? <laughs> now, that may sound crass, and I'm not trying to just be crass. I, I genuinely, and the point was, not did you do that, and Jesus didn't answer, say yes or no. But in that moment... I had this incredible, overwhelming peace and joy flood over me as all of a sudden I felt like he said, you get it. That's, that, that, that may he, he probably didn't do that exact act in that way, but he could have because he lived the fully human experience. He was truly human, completely dependent upon a mother and hopefully a better father in Joseph than I was at the time. He was completely helpless, and he chose to be completely dependent at that point. He chose to fully enter humanity for the full experience, and he maintained that full humanity throughout his life. This Jesus we serve became like us in every single way. And his entire life, he demonstrated a love for us that we cannot possibly comprehend. 
And, and so we can bring our burdens to him of any kind because he understands. God is not a, a blimp that is far away as we talked about last week. He is near, Emmanuel, God with us. And because Jesus enters into our humanity, not only does he identify with us and, and redeem us, but another amazing reality of the incarnation is that he shows us exactly what the Father is like. And this is just crazy. We no longer have to wonder what God is like at a distance. No longer do we have to be afraid of obscure, hard-to-understand passages of the Old Testament saying, what does that show about God? Because in the Jesus, the human being we now have the exact picture of who God is. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he says this, And he, referring to Jesus, is the radiance of his being God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Other translations say the exact imprint. Jesus is the exact imprint, the exact image of who God is. So now we know exactly what God is like. He is not distant. Not only can we identify with him, but we can relate to him just like we talked about last week, that we are now with him. In John chapter 14 and 5, Jesus has this encounter with, with the disciples. And, he, and Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So here in verse 7, Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him, referring to the Father. And you've seen him. Thomas is like, what? I don't get it. So Jesus begins by saying, he is the way to the Father. And then he goes further and says, if you know me, you know the Father. There is no difference. We are the same. To know the Son is the same thing Jesus says as knowing the Father. That's quite a statement. And then in the next verse, it says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. He's like, oh, let us see him then, Philip says, because he didn't get it. Jesus said to him, have I been with you for so long a time, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? You see the problem there? Jesus responds, Philip asks, show us the Father, and Jesus responds, don't you know me? Because to know me is to know the Father. We are the same. There is no difference. And Philip's confused, and Jesus is saying that I am the full expression of the Father in human form. Do you want to know God? Just get to know me. To know Jesus is to know God. To know what Jesus is like is to know what God is like. And then Jesus says to him, The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own. But the Father, as he remains in me, does his works. So to know the fully God, fully human Jesus is to know the Father. My, my favorite theologian, Dr. Gordon Fee, he puts it this way. In the incarnation, God became present among us. My way of putting it, Gordon says, is he came among us. He took off the wraps. So God comes among us, takes off the wraps, and says, here's what I am like. Here's what God is and what God is like. Gordon says, every false theology in history has been a failure to take that seriously. That the only true understanding of God is that which comes through the revelation of Jesus who is the full, perfect, 
absolute representation of who God is. Remember Hebrews 1.3, the exact imprint of who God is and what God is like. So Jesus is God, and he fully entered into humanity. And if we want to get to know God, we, we just need to get to know Jesus. And as we talked about last week, a lot of people have a pretty twisted understanding of God. Remember, God being this, this distant, blimp-like God who's out there that is unknowable, and he's trying to smite human beings, and, and he seems distant and angry. And Jesus is that lovable, huggable God that, that we can get to know. But this is so wrong. Jesus saying, I am the full revelation of who God is. He's saying, my love is a full revelation of the love of God. God's love is ultimately revealed in Jesus. God is ultimately revealed in Jesus. So we should spend a ton of time getting to know Jesus in his word and spending time with him because Jesus is knowable. And he came to earth and identified with us and lived the full human experience so that we could know him, not just to save us from our sins so we go to some distant paradise in the sky for eternity, but so that we would be with him. Another scholar, N.T. Wright, he, he puts it this way. Western orthodoxy, so Western solid Christian teaching, not least of that which calls itself evangelicalism, and we'd kind of fit into that box, has had for too long an overly lofty and detached view of God, that God's that blimp-like God out there. It has always tended to approach the Christological question, which is, who is Jesus? As by assuming this view of God, this distant view of God, and then trying to fit Jesus into this distant view of God. My proposal, N.T. Wright says, is not that we know what the word God means and try to fit Jesus into this picture of God. Instead, I suggest that we think historically about Jesus, a young Jew possessed of a desperately risky, indeed apparently crazy vocation, being the Messiah, riding into Jerusalem in tears, denouncing the temple, and dying on a Roman cross, and that we somehow allowed for our meaning of the word God to be recentered around Jesus, right? That we take the understanding of Jesus revealed in Scripture, and everything about God has to fit into that picture, is what he says, because that's what Jesus says. I am the full picture of who God is is. Anything that we believe that doesn't line up to who Jesus is, is not who God is, Amen. as revealed in Scripture. And, and these first two weeks, I mean, I, I just want to lay a solid foundation, or at least a beginning of one, on the humanity of Christ, because I, although I know Steve's been teaching on this stuff for years, because otherwise, if we go into looking at the things Jesus did, we could just try and copy all the stuff that he did. And that's just exhausting, trying to copy Jesus. But we want to look at who he is, Jesus can relate to us in every single possible way because he has genuinely experienced everything that we have. The creator of humanity entered into our world and fully identified with it. He knows loss and pain and joy and grief and suffering and patience and temptation. He's felt abandoned and isolated and hated. He's felt picked on. He's felt weak. Whatever we're going through, he understands. And not only can he relate to us in every possible way, but we can actually get to know him. Jesus is the full revelation of the Father. He isn't some distant blimp in the sky. He's made himself knowable in the most intimate and practical of ways, becoming one of us. So no matter where we're at today, no matter what you're going through, Jesus understands your circumstances. 
if you've known him for years or, or barely at all or don't know him all, he's saying, cast your burdens upon me and I will give you rest. In me, he says, is eternal life. And he tells us in John 10, verse 10, he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Other translations have life in abundance, not just at some future date, but here and now we experience that life. It's amazing that he's, what he's called us to. And, and there's so many places to go with this, but I want to take a, a small tangent right now of something I feel the Lord told me to, to, to lit upon me to, to, to share this morning as an application that to me is very much related to this abundant life but it's a little bit of a tangent, and that's something I feel we have to be on really on guard right now as Christians in order for us to live this abundant life because many Christians, we're just stomping this abundant life out that God has called us to. And that has to do with our current pandemic. And by that, I don't mean COVID, though that's bad. I'm talking about the far, far worse, most serious pandemic, the pandemic of division and judgment in us and thems that this thing's created and this thing's fostered. COVID's temporary. It's gonna go away at some point, and there's gonna be something else for us to be divided about. But this pandemic of us and thems, it's causing us to be divided with so much division within the church especially. Jesus calls us to a life that is much more beautiful than we could ever imagine and far more beautiful than allowing ourselves to be consumed with who, who is right and, and the we's and the thems and the us's and the they's. Focusing on who is wrong and who is right rather than focusing on the life that God has called us to live into and loving one another. And as a church across the country, we are failing miserably right now to live out the reality of this abundant life in Christ. Representing his joy and his peace and his love is not what we're known for right now. I can only imagine how C.S. Lewis would rewrite the book, The Screwtape Letters, today. I don't know if you've read that book or not, but in that incredible book, C.S. Lewis takes the role of, of, of Screwtape and as, as a, one of the chief demons, and he's mentoring his inexperienced nephew named Wormwood, how to best tempt humanity and to destroy God's plans on earth. And he gives all these plans to do it. In that, he gives this quote. He says, which is one example of what he says. He says, the game, Wormwood, is to, give, to have them, the Christians, all running about with fire extinguishers when there is a flood. Right? And all crowding to one side of the boat, which is a site that's already flooded. Just to mess with them. Just keep distracting them with division and doing the wrong thing, and you'll win. We don't have to worry about God. Today, though, the book would just write itself. It'd be so easy for him to write that book today. So many Christians are living with so much anxiety. And as I meet, I meet weekly with so many people here in Northview, in this church, I'm constantly hearing stories of pain, of people feeling rejected and judged and often people responding out of that pain. Today's screw, screw tape would just tell Wormwood to sow division with masks and vaccines and politics. I mean, who would have ever thought that this little piece of cloth could bring the body of Christ to its knees in division? I mean, it's just so easy right now to, to encourage division in our body of Christ amongst Christians. He'd probably tell them to create social media campaigns to, to bring even greater divisiveness. And that's insane because there was just this report that came out a couple weeks ago by MIT. And it was picked up a couple days ago by Relevant Magazine. A Christian, this is a Christian magazine. And they put out this article that said, in 2019, almost all of Facebook's top Christian pages were run by foreign troll farms. This isn't just some fancy news. It's a study that was categorically determined true. And it comes from out of MIT. And the point is that these, these organizations were designed out of coming out of Eastern Europe to sow division in America. And their focus was the church. That was their goal was one thing, division. Bring division. 
And they did it in spectacular fashion of success, unheard of success that they had. They created these massive Facebook campaigns. And no joke, these are not just random numbers. 75 million Christians every month were touched by their messages of division across the country. That's how successful it was. 75 million Christians a month were being impacted. It says, in the study, it said 95% of those who saw the message weren't those who liked it or followed the pages. They were simply, the algorithm was making them see this division and all these memes and other comments sowing division in the church among Christians. Of the top 20 Christian sites in 2019, 17 of them were run by these companies coming out of Eastern Europe trying to sow division in America amongst Christians specifically. This is not by chance. And it's not the other people over there. You ha- if you're on Facebook, you've been influenced by this. There's not billions of Christians in America. Satan is not sitting, sitting idly by while we move further into our camps of us and them, while we look at the people over there with suspicion or, or outright disdain, and we assume the worst of their intentions and the best of our own. We are not immune to this here at Northview. And if we don't take this seriously, it's going to tear us apart. Satan is out for blood, and he's not taking prisoners. He's trying to wipe people out. He's stoking division and anxiety of the us's and the them's. And right now, it's like shooting fish in a baby in a barrel. It's so easy for him. We're just lining up. We're barely putting up a fight or any effort. We just keep sowing more and more discord and and passing more things along. And he's using this to tear down the body of Christ. Every comment we make to disparage someone else or comment we silently agree that someone else makes, we're just helping him to sow greater division. Every meme that you post on Facebook or like on social media, poking fun at someone that you disagree with, makes Satan's job that much easier. Every snarky or or sarcastic comment we make about someone else, for whether they're vaccinated or not vaccinated or wearing a mask or not, whatever the thing is, all we're doing is sowing greater division. We're just lining up for him to take us out. I'm not saying we can't have dialogue. Please have dialogue with humility and curiosity and seeking to understand and sharing opinions. But we have to do it with humility and love. And we must assume that the other that we're talking to is not stupid or gullible or uninformed, regardless of their position. The church is being torn apart right now in this country. Another study came out by Barna last year that showed that they expect 20%, one in five of every church to shut down in the near future coming out of this pandemic. They expect 40% of all pastors who started in this pandemic to not make it through, primarily because of the division and the exhaustion from dealing with division in churches. This is real, and it's real too. Jesus has called us to a life of abundance, a, a full life with him, experiencing his life, his love that we share with him and we share with others, a life marked by his joy and his peace and his life. He, came to fu- he, he fully came into this world as a fully human man to show us the life that he want, that he shared with his Father and with the Spirit and that he offered to us. And he did it also to show us that he understands division. He understands our pain. But if you think we're divided today, just go back and look at first century Israel. Look at what was going on in the time of Jesus. 
They hated the Roman government. War was common. Just before Jesus was born, the emperor Varus crucified 2,000 Jews right along the main road. So everyone coming in would see them for miles, Jews lining the road, 2,000 crucifixions, and left them there for a very long time as a message saying, do not ever get out of line. And the zealots were rising up, and they were killing government officials, not just posting mean things about them on Facebook. They were killing them. That was the situation Jesus was speaking into. We are a nation at rest and peace compared to the time of Christ. So as a practical application of this, I want to challenge each of us. Now, this isn't my main application. This is just a freebie. I'm not going to charge you for it. But a a, a basic application I want to give all of us is is take time to to actually ask the Lord to show you your heart this week. Reveal where you've been walking, maybe in arrogance or judgment towards others. When we're we're participating in judging others and and categorizing the us's and the them's, and when we find it, what we should do? Repent. If you've said something disparaging to someone else, repent and go apologize. It's that simple. If you've said something not to that person, but to someone else about someone who's in your us crowd, and you said it to them, go apologize and repent to them about what you said about the other people, because you're sowing division. We must repent of this and walk away from the divisions and the lines that are dividing us in the body of Christ. And we must be people who exemplify the love of Christ and the unity He's called us to as His children. That must be what we are known for, as we saw last week in John 17, how well we love one another. And so Jesus became fully human, and we can share in His life. Jesus knows our anxiety. He knows our fears and for our kids and for our future. He knows what it's like for the values of the nation to not represent His own. He knows what it's like to live in an anti-God society where children are being indoctrinated by an evil Roman Empire that is filled with division and unrest. And He came into this life to give us His life, a new way united in Him. And we can experience this easy yoke of His. We get to live with Him and know the Creator of the universe. Amen. Let us take communion. And as we do that, I want to read from Philippians chapter 2 again. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus emptied himself, became nothing, humbled himself to the point of death. Worse than that, to death on a cross. A death reserved only for the most horrific of criminals. And this is what Jesus calls us to remember until he returns. That God came to earth fully human and gave his life for us that we might be united with him. And at communion, he he calls us to remember him until he returns. That God came to earth fully human and gave his life for us. So we take the bread, and by it we remember that his body was broken for us, that he suffered the ultimate humiliation so that we could be fully united in him again. Let's take the bread. And then we take the cup. 
that is a symbol of his blood that was shed for us, that he gave his life for us, that we could share eternal life with him. We can share eternal life with him. And and what is eternal life? According to Jesus, is it all about being saved or getting to heaven when we die? I don't think so. Let's finish with the words of Jesus. Some of the final words that he spoke before his death, just after he took communion with the disciples, he's telling them about this beautiful passage from chapter 14 to 17 of John about where he's going and and what's going to happen and the Holy Spirit that's coming. And he says this to them in verse 1. He says, after Jesus said this, after he told them that they're going to suffer, he looked towards heaven and he prayed. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Verse 3. Now this is eternal life. That we all get get out of jail free cards? No. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There it is. Far more than, than getting sinners into heaven, for eternity, far more than, than getting that get-out-of-hell-free card or getting us mansions in heaven. Jesus' longing is that we would know him and his Father. This is how Jesus defines eternal life. Therefore, it is how we should define it as well. Eternal life is not just a future destination we go when we die, but a present reality that we begin to taste and walk in right now and that we will experience more and more for the rest of our lives. Dallas Willard says, eternal life is not about quantity as in duration, but more about quality. The the, the eternal life is a relational, abundant life that God has created us for, to know him and walk with him here and now. A life that brings healing where there is division and joy in the midst of sorrow, and we get to partake of this life now. Because Jesus came fully into humanity, so we can be united with him, amen? Let us pray. Father, may we fix our eyes on you, Lord. May we never forget the reality of what you've done for us. That you came from heaven to earth, Lord. The king of the universe became a slave. The maker of everything became nothing. You sacrificed your lives for us. For our sakes, you became poor that we could become rich. And you did it all so you could give us your eternal life so you could draw us back into fellowship with you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for loving us so much, Lord, for pouring out your life to give us eternal life in you, that we could experience your abundant life here and now. Oh, Jesus, help us to reorder our lives, to keep fixing our eyes upon you, Lord Jesus. Oh, Father, may we taste of your eternal life.